You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. Time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny March 14th, Day Davis Day. Sparkling, clear, sunny weather with a north wind here in the Sacramento Valley, and nobody's complaining about it. It's <laughs> warm, it's man. It's going to be, well, warm, <laughs> relatively speaking. It is 57 degrees, our definition of warm at the moment. You know it's that, going to be over 60 you today. You know that on Saturday, I think we never got above 55. So sunny today, 63 degrees, partly cloudy tonight, 42. Nights above the, the 30s for a little while into the near future. Friday, going to be 66 degrees. Friday night, 44. Saturday, 69 degrees. Oh, one more degree. We'll make it to 70s. 48. And on Sunday, it'll be 72 degrees. There we go. For the first time in many, many, many weeks. Tom Finan, meteorologist for Channel 3, I think, uh, said that this is the longest spell below 70 degrees that we've had in a long time here. It's been unusually cool here in the Sacramento Valley, January. February and into March. But we're going to hit 70 degrees on Sunday. Sunday night will be 49 degrees, 73 degrees on Monday, and then Tuesday, 70, and a chance of showers Wednesday. What do you mean a chance of showers? Possible another storm. Yep. The extended discussion Monday through Thursday tells us the dry weather will continue Monday and Tuesday as this upper ridge axis shifts through the area. And then a closed low will approach, and they're talking about... Uh, rain beginning over higher terrain Wednesday afternoon by Wednesday night through Thursday. Widespread light to moderate precipitation predicted over most of the forecast area. High temperatures will cool from about 10 degrees above normal Monday to near normal by Thursday. So, so you've got a week of really good gardening weather. Hey, Don, can we plant tomatoes yet? Sure, go for no. it. Do whatever you want. <laughs> All right, no, Don, me... you can't. You can't. No, say I, that. I give up. Plant them. Just do it. Just do plant. Do whatever no. you want. I don't care anymore. No. <laughs> okay. Go go to Don's uh, commercial site, redwoodbarn.com, and read his stuff about no, tomatoes. No. We can say things. it in unison at our store now. For best results, we plant tomatoes in April, peppers and eggplants in May. Yes. For, For best, best results, results, we, we plant, plant tomatoes in April, April and peppers, peppers and eggplants in May. But, you know, the, the tomato canning tomato growers are prepping down in the southern San Joaquin Valley area, getting those in the ground as early as they can. Bear in mind, those are canning tomatoes, whole different beast, not the way we do them in our garden. 
Um, but this morning, or no, when was it? A couple of days ago, when it was only like in the 50s, someone walked in and said to me, uh, do you have Thai chili starts? And my reply was, no, it's too chilly. <laughs> it's too chilly for chili right now. It's not okay. me. So we do have some events coming up that we should mention to you. The uh, UC Davis Folk Music Jam Session next one is March 22nd. Those are on alternate Fridays. Those are Fridays, mm-hmm. right? Friday at Folk musicians invited to bring their acoustic instruments and play together informally during the acoustic jam session at Wyatt Deck next to the Redwood Grove in the UC Davis Arboretum. Noon to one. Alternate Fridays. Next one is March 22nd. There's a location map at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Can't really miss the Wyatt Deck there if you're heading down what used to be called Old Davis Road. You'll find them. Look for the Redwood Trees. Next public plant sale. And the last one was a week or so ago. Next public plant sale is April 6th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can shop their one-acre nursery. I am so jealous. An acre nursery for an incredible selection of art. My, my nursery is 8,000 square feet. Yeah. Just, you know, whole thing, including parking. Shop our one-acre nursery for an incredible selection of Arboretum All-Stars, California natives, and thousands of other attractive low-water plants perfect for creating a landscape alive with environmentally important pollinators, among other things. That's April 6th. 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., open to the public at the Arboretum Teaching Nursery for location and event details. And shortly before that, they almost surely will have an inventory posted. You can go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu. I can tell you, if there's something on that inventory you want, move fast. You better get there and be in line before they open and know where you're going. Yep. Okay. Uh, okay, had, so some, and uh, and later on we'll give you a couple of announcements about uh, Vince in Davis that okay. are other other than gardening. Okay, snow. Why, Don, the aliens have landed we this have... morning, and I, I went into my my bathroom, and there was this bright light. <laughs> Rising in the east, it was astonishing. <laughs> it's been a while since we've had sunlight. <laughs> since it's been a while since we've had several days of, of yeah. sunlight in sequence. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. and it, you know, most of the time it's like it it peaks in here and there. This time it was like, oh wow, all day, all day. Good, anyway, good weed pulling weather. Oh yes, yes. yeah. So, so uh, tell tell me about the snowpack this year. One hundred and fifty something percent of average, pretty much across the state. I did print out a whole yep. guide to where the reservoirs and snowpack stands. It's good. It's uh, I believe statewide uh, one hundred and fifty one percent of the April one average in the north part. One hundred and fifty six percent of the April one average. That's an important date because it marks the transition from snow accumulation to to water. Um, he, he's to melt. Pointing something at me. Well, just come in and do it. Okay. Um, okay, got it. Me? I'll go up. There we go. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, technical advice there. And <laughs> even in the southern part, it's 150% of the April 1 average. So what, the other key question is where do the reservoirs stand? Well, they're at about, let's see, Lake Shasta is about 88%. Now, it's 88% of full. Of capacity, and they leave some yes. space there for oh, the yeah. snow to melt. It's about 115% of its historical average. All of them are above 100% of their historical average, ranging from 102% at Lake Oroville, which I think they're keeping a little lower because it leaked last year, up to about 130% for a couple lakes down in the southern part of the valley. So we're, except for Trinity, 98% of historical average. Reservoirs are in good shape, room for the snow to melt. Hopefully it don't all melt too fast. Plenty of moisture this year. We're already well above what would be average for the year. So it can stop raining now and we'll be fine. 
So just for those of our listeners who are not local or who are new to Davis, the reason that we talk about snow and things like that here is that in the Central Valley of California, and California is this giant valley, and the two-thirds of the valley up in the north is just, everything runs into the middle, uh, Sacramento, San Joaquin Valleys, and then out to the, uh, to the bay. Well, the snow, as it melts, fills up those creeks and sh- rivers and streams and all that stuff and provides a lot of water for us that we use during the summer when it's really, really hot and dry. Yep. So snowpack is very important to us. And to the Southern California listeners. Oh, yes. Because that's, that's a oh, big yes. source of their water as well, as well as the farmers in the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley. So, so it has to do with gardens. It yes. really does. We have one of the world's most complicated plumbing systems here. Okay, a bunch of questions and things that have come in. And, oh, yeah, oh, this is a good one. Melissa up in Woodland writes, Hi there. I am hearing your show for the very first time today. That was March 6th. I heard you say, quote, We no longer recommend you amend your soil, unquote. Mm-hmm. Would you expand on that or point me to your online information about that? That's Thank a, you. That's a big change over the years, although it's been going back a long ways. And it first started with research on woody plants. And when I say woody plants, I'm referring to shrubs and trees. And way back when I was a student, right about the, right after the Civil War, about before <laughs> the Transcontinental Railroad went through, um, they were doing a lot of research on planting trees in unamended soil. When I say amended and unamended, I mean soil that you've just... Unamended means you just use dig a hole and backfill the hole with the stuff you took out of the hole. The native soil is what we call that. Uh, tradition, when I worked in a nursery, was to try and sell someone a bag of planting mix with everything that went out. I remember the first nursery I worked at, that was a tie-in sale. If we didn't make that tie-in sale or at least attempt it, the nursery owner would frown at us and remind us that we were supposed to say with every purchase, do you need a bag of planting mix with that, ma'am? Because about half the time they would go, oh, I guess I do, and he'd make a little more money on the sale. Um, we and this selling, was normal. This, this was, was not. He was not trying to cheat anything. He no. was doing best practice at the time. As far as anybody knew. Now, a lot of researchers, including work uh, here at Davis, Dr. Richard Harris, some of the others uh, um, in Oklahoma and other places, would do these tests where they would plant trees in soil that had been amended and plant trees in soil that had not been amended. And they would measure the top growth. And they found that the only correlation of greater top growth wasn't the amendment. It wasn't the compost. It was the nitrogen that was put in. Well, we know that. Adding nitrogen. Fertilizer. Adding nitrogen makes plants grow. Okay. So the the purpose of the amendment seemed to be just basically the benefits people were seeing were coming from the fertilizer component. So then the question comes up as we have to ask ourselves as retailers – well, is it hurting anything for them to turn in the compost? Is it helping? Is it hurting? And somewhere on that spectrum, we make a decision about whether to keep selling these things to people as tie-in sales. I can assure you, when the first reports came out suggesting that amending the soil didn't benefit trees, and I was going to nursery association meetings back then, there was a lot of grumbling. A lot of those old nursery guys would argue vigorously, and the most common argument they'd give was, I got a lifetime of experience. I've always done it this way, and I've gotten great results. What the researchers were patiently and diplomatically trying to say was, the results you're seeing are from the fertilizer, not the compost. So the next, well, okay, that's a good reason. It's got so fertilizer. just put a little fertilizer in it. The question was, is the compost harmful? Well, that was the next set of research. Plant so what the trees, did they do? Plant the trees without the fertilizer? Plant the trees with the compost and without, and then dig them up later. Uh and see what the roots had done. And here's the problem with amending the soil for woody plants, for trees and things like that. So this is where this all began to sort of unravel for the nursery industry. They would dig them up and find that trees that had been planted in amended soil 
the roots had difficulty penetrating out of the amended soil into the native soil. When you create an interface, as they call it, of different soil types, it affects how the water moves between those soil types, and it affects how the roots penetrate. No, it wasn't the end of the world. It, mm-hmm. They weren't completely just bound into little circles, but it did look like what we call a bathtub effect. The roots had not generally penetrated nearly as well out to anchor the tree securely mm-hmm. and to explore new soil and bring in more nutrients and moisture for the plant as had the ones that were planted. So just that's a harmful effect. In, so this moved us on the spectrum of is it helpful, is it harmful towards the, it's harmful. Mm-hmm. The other issue with amending the soil with organic material for woody plants is that organic material relatively quickly in warm areas, breaks down. Mm-hmm. It does what it's supposed to do. It, decomposes. it essentially decomposes yeah. and amends the soil that way. It's good for the soil, but then the area settles. And so you've now created an area where the roots have difficulty penetrating the nearby native soil compared to those that are planted just in the native soil. And now it's lower. Can you think of a time oh, of year? So when then a... it's going to have water sitting on it. Right. So we get a lot of rain, water stands around the tree. We get a lot of excess irrigation from a lawn, water stands around the tree. And that can be problematic for some species. And in general, it's not a good practice to have plants in low areas. So now we know that woody plants, trees, shrubs, should not have the soil amended in general. Well, what about for your flowers and vegetables and things like that? And this gets a little more complicated. One is that almost anybody, the first time they plant a garden, and they have relatively dense mineral soils like we have here that have a lot mm-hmm. of silt or even clay to them. It seems like you couldn't possibly just plant right into that. You know, it's hard to work it. Your shovel doesn't turn it well. So you tend to want to break it up. And so almost everybody does that. They go out and they get a couple inches of compost, preferably with some fertilizer in it. They spread that over the bed. They turn it in. They plant into that. And they get great results, mm-hmm. partly because of the fertilizer, partly because the roots can establish better. So we know, unfortunately, that when you do that, one thing you're doing is you're breaking up the soil web And the soil web is a general term for all of that interaction of roots and soil mycorrhiza organisms, things that live on and in the roots that then grow out into the soil and harvest nutrients for the plant, take up water more readily for the plant, uh, all the earthworms and things like that, all the things that are down there that aren't plant and aren't root and aren't mineral are, are part of the soil web, and they are an important part of the life of the plant. If you break that up, here's the question. How long does that damage of breaking up the soil web, of rototilling or turning and breaking it, how long does that last? A couple years. We know that. It takes about that long. Well, so if you rototill every year, you never get it back. Right. And that's why we don't recommend you rototill every year. What grandpa was doing was wrong, but don't tell him that. (laughs) Grandpa was going and getting manure and spreading it on the garden, getting out the tiller, tilling up the garden. And he was essentially creating a sort of a perched layer of soil six inches or so is about as deep as a rototiller really goes, heavily amended. And that's where most of the roots would typically stay Mm -hmm. of when he would plant into that. And he does that year after year after year. You can go online and find excellent illustrations of what happens to the soil when you rototill to about the same depth every year. No matter what you're putting in up top, right at the bottom of the tilling layer, it gets compacted and gets mm-hmm. denser and denser. Like and in a hard pan. We call it a plow pan because a hard pan is an actual thing of, mm. of actual soil, like rock-like substance. But a plow pan is something you've created. Yes, it's like a hard pan of condensed soil that water won't penetrate readily. You now have this weird interface, like I described before, only it's at the bottom of your, your bed. 
and roots won't penetrate it as readily. Yes, yeah, some things like tomatoes, pretty good chance they'll get through. They're deep-rooted, vigorous plants. A lot of other things end up just all the roots up in that perched zone, six, maybe 10, 12 inches if you really mm. have a good rototiller. And that's what you have to water and fertilize all season long because the roots won't get any deeper or further out than that. So that's not too much of a problem back in Michigan and Wisconsin and stuff where it's, it's wet all the time. But out here where it's so darn dry, you're going to have to water that, that, that thing incredibly. You'd have to water more frequently. You've essentially yeah. created a raised planter condition right in your normal garden soil. And the thing is we have outstanding garden soil here in the Sacramento Valley anywhere you're listening, even if it's dense, even if it has a, you know, has a lot of clay to it, it is a good agricultural soil. So if you're doing this, you're basically creating problems for yourself. I don't mm-hmm. have, I don't hesitate if you've got a brand new yard, it's just been compacted by the builder and the subdivision is all new and uh, you want to make a bed. Yeah, go out and get you some You have stuff. no soil web to begin Pretty with. Pretty much. That's right. You're, gonna, <laughs> you're starting your soil web now. So, so then the question always comes up, well, how do I continue in the future? If you say it takes a couple of years for that soil web to reestablish, how do I continue to make the soil better and things go deeper. It's very simple. You just put stuff on top. Mm-hmm. Because whatever you put on top, if it's any kind of organic material, and this can range, I mean, they vary in quality, but they, they can be nearly anything with some advantages and drawbacks. They'll, they'll sit there. There's moisture there. They'll break down at a rate that's roughly governed by the soil temperature and the soil moisture. The presence of soil bacteria, which are present, you don't need to add them, uh, will enhance their breakdown. And worms will come up and go into them and back and into them and back. And carry bits away. Basically, they'll do the amending for you. The Mm -hmm. other thing you can do is uh, is create macropores, which is a technical Mm. term for something that makes the water penetrate down faster and deeper. One simple way is to just take like a spading fork or something and stick that in and wiggle it around. That does, but don't lift any soil. Right. You're just kind of loosening. But it, ultimately, a really simple way is to use roots for that purpose. So when we plant cover crops in the fall and we let those roots explore as deep as they want to because there's plenty of moisture because of the rains, and then the season comes time to get rid of the cover crops, rather than rip them out, just mm. cut them off. And so, you take so, so, so when the roots decompose, then you've got these little channels for the water to run in. Macropores. Ooh. You've created macropores. And, of course, worms do that, too. Uh, so if you have things that are known for having deep roots, like daikon radish, for example, mustard, things like that, those roots will just penetrate down there for you. But, again, don't pull them up. Uh, it's simpler just to go ahead and cut them off. Take mm-hmm. the tops, do whatever you're going to do with them, compost them somewhere, pile them up on mm-hmm. one end of the garden, let them make the worms happy, and just let those roots disintegrate. And you'll find as time goes by, you'll be adding organic material on the surface. It'll be working its way in surprisingly quickly. You'll be surprised how fast your soil gradually gets better and better. You can just go in and interplant between where the fava beans were, where you've cut the stumps off at the ground, and they're maybe a foot or so apart. You can take a trowel, go right between them, stick a tomato in there. Everything's fine. You don't need to turn it. I gave away my rototiller 15 years ago because I wasn't using it anymore Mm -hmm. because I was just letting grasses grow in the winter and mowing them off, piling them up somewhere, uh, growing fava beans, cutting them down, piling them up somewhere, and occasionally planting things that would be deeper rooted. And almost everything you plant, the roots will be beneficial in one way or another. So just leave the roots there, creating those macro pores, and continue adding organic stuff. Now, one of the simplest things you can do is tell the tree service that's working in your neighborhood that you want them, the next time their truck is full of ground-up tree, you want them to dump that in your driveway. Mm. That'll be about 15 cubic yards, Mm -hmm. which by my estimate is about 200 wheelbarrow loads. 
And uh, so you'll pile that everywhere, everywhere. Six inches deep is absolutely fine. Even where you're going to be planting tomatoes and things later, just leave it there. Water it if it's, you know, hot weather. Water it to settle the dust and get it. And we know that the mycorrhiza in the soil grow up into that mm-hmm. quickly, that the worms will come up into it and start pulling it down. Then when you need to plant, you just pull it out of the way. And I don't use that in the vegetable garden because it's just too coarse there, but I'm talking about other parts of the yard. Mm-hmm. And you just, anywhere there's bare soil, cover it up with that stuff. And that's the way to amend the soil naturally. Okay. So when you're planting a cover crop, um, the things you're talking about, the daikon radish and stuff, if you cut the tops off, that's it. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that uh, grow from the roots or mm-hmm. the rhizomes. So you have to sort of be careful. Yeah. Like I wouldn't plant Ulstromeria as a cover crop because <laughs> yes. you'd have Ulstromeria forever. We have a whole bed of Ulstromeria, yes. I can't think of, can't nice, think of very, <laughs> Yeah, I can't think of very many uh, cover crops that are rhizome spreaders like that, but I mean, most of them are plants that we're growing for a singular purpose. For example, fava beans people plant for two reasons. One is to yeah. eat the fava beans. If you're trying to benefit your soil, you actually should cut them down right as they're coming into bloom. That's hard for people to do. The blooms are cool and smell great, and they're, but we know that as they're setting seed, the nitrogen fixation, which is one of the main reasons people like to plant fava beans, is diminishing in the soil because the nitrogen is going up into the beans that are forming. So, you know, grow a big bed of fava beans. Leave the ones on one end to harvest if you actually like to eat the things. Otherwise, just chop them all down and just cut them. Just cut them down and then take that coarse stuff that you've cut off. You can turn that into compost. Anywhere you pile up leafy debris. Pick it up about a month later and see what's right under there. Invariably, there's all kinds of earthworms. You'll find some little black beetles, which are beneficial. All kinds of stuff going on right where that stuff is breaking down on the soil. So -hmm. keeping your soil covered is one of the simplest things you can do. And you'll be encouraging all these different components of the soil web by doing that. So that works really well if you're talking about a place that you've rototilled and made that artificial layer. Yeah. yeah. But what if it's an actual planter box? Do you mm-hmm. do the same thing? I mean, I guess it depends on whether there's a bottom to the box or it just goes directly into the soil. That's a hu- that's an important question that I always forget to ask. And uh, when so when someone comes in and they're having trouble with their vegetables, and I realize it's a raised planter. I, I really should, first thing I should say is, did you put a bottom on this or is it actually th- connected through to the soil? Because what you've, if you've put a bottom on it, you just have a container. I mean, you yeah. just have, you just you have a large pop. planter, so that's a whole different issue. But if it's a raised bed where you brought in soil, you have some interesting problems, and they're always the same problems, two things that come up summer after summer. Someone will spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars building really nice planter boxes Contact the rock yard who sells them their special custom blend, which is usually, let's say, 70% topsoil, which is a sandy loam if you're lucky, and 30% of their special compost. There's one locally that will add turkey manure. All right, that's all great. That's all good stuff. You take that and you fill your box with it. And you plan into it. You have you have a bathtub, yes, of, of fancy, sand. loose, fast-draining it's fairly high nitrogen soil if they've added some compost in there, usually not. And then below that is your native soil. So water runs through what you have filled the box with, hits that native denser soil, and creates Puddles essentially up. a saturated zone that roots yeah. have difficulty penetrating. It's best if you can, if you can do this, as you fill it, amend As you're it. making it. Yeah, as you fill the thing, uh, as you put in that topsoil compost blend, turn the soil down there, the native soil. Add an inch or two of the stuff you bring in. Turn it again. Add an inch or so. In other words, have a gradient of new soil into regular soil instead of just a sudden interface where it's fancy soil above poorly draining soil. This seems to bother people, the idea of pulling up native soil from below because we have silt and clay which make our soil dense. That's good. That's good. Those are great. They're very useful in two regards. They retain moisture. 
and they retain nutrients. And the biggest problem I see all summer long with raised planters is people whose plants aren't growing well because you're having you're not watering them often enough. The gravity just pulls you know the stuff just drains out too quickly. The soil you added doesn't retain moisture, so that's problem number one is inadequate moisture. And number two is that it's a it's a faster draining soil that tends not to hold nutrients, particularly nitrogen, well, so you have to fertilize. And there's organic foods you can use. You can use conventional fertilizers. It doesn't really matter. But in a raised planter, you almost always, especially for the first two, three, four years, have to water more frequently, daily in many cases. That's okay. You don't have to use that much water when you do it. And you have to fertilize regularly. And I mean at the time of planting, probably again midsummer, maybe even again late in the summer if you're getting your tomatoes all the way into the fall, maybe, you know, maybe even a third feeding. Whereas most people just out in the open ground won't have to do that because mm-hmm. the water, their native soils will retain moisture and retain nutrients better. So that's a drawback of a raised planter. You can fix this over time. In two ways is one is to uh, create those macro pores, plant things that have deep roots, tomatoes, pumpkins, daikon radishes, things like that that will go down and break through that that interface and make a pore that will gradually you know integrate those soils for you. The other is just like with a regular bed, top dress it every season with something, and it doesn't really matter. Top dress, a jargon term. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Uh, Mulch it. Put a couple inches of on. That's what it really refers to. Why do we call it top dressing? That doesn't make sense. Because there's also side <laughs> dressing. True. Okay. So they're, they're two different things. Put on top all... of the soil a couple inches or so of whatever. Compost, mm-hmm. bark is fine if you want. It takes longer to break down. Those arborist wood chips we were talking about, something you buy in a bag, it says uh, garden soil or whatever, you know, some sort of planting compost. Economical stuff. You don't need, to, don't need to spend a lot of money on this because mm-hmm. it's just going to lie there working its way in slowly and steadily. And it's going to keep the moisture from evaporating quite so fast. Yeah. So it'll, it'll help a little bit. Not a lot with that moisture, but a little bit. Yeah, an example, my, my friend Fred Hoffman, who does the radio show in Sacramento that I sit in on periodically, he had some real, real fancy raised planters built. And he, they were, I think, 24 inches deep because he wanted to be able to sit on the ledge. Mm-hmm. He ultimately found he was watering daily. Mm-hmm. He calculated it very carefully. He was watering, I think, if I recall correctly, and I'll find my notes on this, 35 minutes each day with a system that was putting out water slowly. So that inner, the drip systems that have the drip emitters in the tubing, inline tubing. So it was running for 35 minutes a day, every day. And uh, if he got home at the end of the day, the north wind had been blowing, or it was unusually hot, he'd run it again for a little while. And I added it all up and realized that he wasn't really watering that much more than most people in a regular garden. He just had to do it more frequently. Yeah. His it's, total, it's something you have to monitor all the time. And if you, if you miss a little bit, the, it, it's going to suffer faster. Fred has a moisture meter that he bought online, which cost him many dollars, not, not a cheap little houseplant moisture meter. Well-made, lasts. He's been using it for several years. And uh, you can find on his blog, uh, Farmer Fred's blog. He's the Get Growing with Farmer Fred. He's on Facebook. And he, show, he has a link to it. It works. He uses that. And that's how he mm-hmm. calibrated the whole thing to realize he actually needed to be running it this often. When he first put it in, my recollection is that uh, he wasn't running it that long because he didn't seem like it would need that. And then he began to realize, yeah, it really needed to, to get the depth of watering he was after. 35 minutes a day was doing it. In my garden, I can put all that water on at once. Mm-hmm. In and one, then ignore it for And then in a while. week, yeah, I can yeah. go five days or more even with shallow-rooted plants. And so that's a big difference of the gravity and the type of soil that you've put into the planter. So it, the real issue is, is whether you're using native soil or something you've purchased. And there are some real differences. 
Now, why did you hand me this? It tells you some of the some of the key differences to summarize what we just said there about native okay. soil. Okay, using native soil, we live in a very large river plain. Yep. River floodplain. Indeed. I say that right. Historic flood patterns determine the type, especially the density of our soil. So that's a key thing. The closer you are to a creek, the bigger the soil particles in your yard. So you mm-hmm. live near Puda Creek. I do. Relatively speaking, flood-wise. So you, you're on an area that actually is sandy loam. If you go further out, you get to silt. Silt is a smaller particle. It can go further in flood water. If you go further out, you get to clay or soil, clay-like soils. That's clay even, even finer particles. Finest. You know, the yeah. finest soil particles of the mineral part are clay. And so if you're further from it during flood periods, that's where the clay settles. Mm-hmm. So you, the flood zone doesn't go forever, but... You can you can look at historical maps if you're curious. Sure, yeah. And you yeah, may don't, you don't. may think, well, clay is this hard thing that you make ceramic pots out of. Yeah, but it each in individual <laughs> particle of clay is very, 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 very fine, which is why it can clump together like that. And when you have a blend of clay and silt and sand and some organic stuff, and there's a loam, and we technically here don't have clay soils. People who live where there's real clay soils know what I'm talking about. You drive into those in the winter, you're not going to get pulled out until spring. (laughs) They're doby-type soils Mm. or gumbo or any of a number of other colloquial names for the soils that are so sticky. Sticks onto it that you can't get it off. So here we have have loam-type soils, but the further you are from the traditional flood zones, the finer your soil is likely to be. Mm -hmm. Finer, denser, I should say. Yeah, fine. Yeah, okay. All right. So the Soil Web is an excellent online resource provided by the UC Davis, I mean, excuse me, University of California Land, Air, and Water Resources Department. That website is casoilresource.lawr.ucdavis.edu slash gmap. But you know what you can Google? You can UCD Soil Map. Yeah, we'll get that's you there. good. That's good. <laughs> okay, and what is an amazing overlay of Google Earth uh, and all the different soil types that are, would historically were in the area? Yeah. If you've been subdivided, you know maybe something weird was done to your soil when it was built. Those of you in southeast woodland, for example, or in the cannery, soils were moved around. So it's not absolutely a perfect guide, but you can look at it, and it's very interesting because you can literally zoom right down to your house mm-hmm. on this and go, "Oh, that's what that's what it is," and then you need a little technical help on what it all means. But it's fascinating yeah. to look at. Cool. Cool. Um, the closer you are to the local creeks, the sandier the soil. You said that. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, excuse me, our, naturally we don't have very much organic material in our soils. And think of why that is. Well, we don't have forests. Exactly. Right? We don't have rain. We don't have forests. We don't have shrubs. We don't even have much in the way of perennial grasses. Yeah. So what we would have here, uh, our natural soil uh, organic matter content is less than 1%. I mean, substantially. It's very, very yeah. light, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so the denser the soil, the more water it can hold. Good. The sandier the soil, the faster the water goes into it, but also goes out of it. Yep. And the sandier the soil, the less water it can hold, um, and so that water is not available for plants to use later. So, that's a key factor. Denser is is best for holding water. But you got to water slowly for it to go in. Yeah. And sandier is fine as long as it's not too sandy. Yep. And if it's too sandy, then it just goes right, right through, through and yeah. Yep. Okay. Adding organic material can help your soil retain moisture. Now, that's a key thing that he didn't say when he was talking about mm-hmm. um, native soil and other soil. Amending it is not the same as adding organic material. Well, You're maybe it, it is, surface. but... You're, yeah, you're letting the worms do it. It's yeah. basically what it is. Passive amendment. <laughs> okay. The best way to manage your soil is called no-till. 
You add organic material by mulching it regularly, by cutting rather than pulling plants so that their roots decompose on site in place. And you let the organic material amend itself with the worms and the mycorrhiza doing the work for you. It Critters, a, all right. It takes a while. That's the thing. It takes yeah. a little while. So if you're starting with a, with a really clay-like soil, you may want to... Break the rules and amend them at first, but then try to use there, nature. There's a rental place where you can rent a rototiller for a day, and that's all you need. Yep, once. Once. So there's a catered alert that we want to bring to your attention. The Davis-based acoustic duo Misner and Smith will join Peter Pasteur for a li- another edition of Live Dirt in the K-Dirt studio. These are great fun to listen to. Friday, March 15th. That's, that's tomorrow. tomorrow. At 3.30 p.m., Misner and Smith combine soaring vocal harmonies, tight instrumental arrangements, story-filled poetic songwriting, their latest album is called Headwaters. They'll be playing at the Veterans Memorial Theater with Rainbow Girls on Saturday, March 16th. And for more information, go to davislivemusic.com. And now we've got an announcement for Rainbow Girls. So read that one. Oh, uh, one yeah, oh I see. Oh, hey, we have a catered alert. <laughs> North Bay band Rainbow Girls will join Doug Deep for another edition of Live Dirt in the Catered Studio, Saturday, March 16th at 4 p.m. Rainbow Girls perform original songs in a soulful, bluesy style. Their latest album is called American Dream. They'll be playing at the Veterans Memorial Theater with Misner and Smith that evening. More information at davislivemusic.com. So if you're, you, you can't come down here and be audience for the uh, no, live listen. dirt, but you can listen. Listen to Yeah, our studio is so small. International There's House something. Davis presents 12 month-long art exhibits every year, most with an international theme. I House Davis is located on College Park Drive just off Russell Boulevard. For exhibit and exhibitor information, call I House at 530-753-5007 or just visit internationalhousedavis.org. And I actually wanted him to mention this one okay. uh, instead, and well, I just didn't not? point to the right thing. The Hedrick Ag History that's, Center that's in it. Woodland introduces visitors to the marvels of agriculture and trucking through 130,000 square feet that's right. of interactive one-of-a-kind exhibits. The cornerstone of the center is the world's largest and most unique collection of antique agricultural equipment. Really? The largest in the world? Not some place in Kansas? Wow. Yeah, well. Okay, I'll take their word for it. For visitor volunteer membership or information, you can call 530-666-9700 or go to egghistory.org. You are listening to KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. This is... The Davis Garden Show. With Dan Shore and Lois Richter. And we have another headline. Alert, alert. House plants don't actually clean the air. Well, I didn't like this headline. This <laughs> that's, one bothered that's, me. That's a, you know, it, yeah, well, the quote was, to start to even marginally lower indoor air pollution, uh, the writer estimates that you would need at least one house plant for every 20 square feet yeah. of floor space. It's not unreasonable. One house plant per 20 square feet. I'd say some of my customers are getting there. Well, the point of this article, which was in what, Atlantic? Let me see where I, where I pulled that one from. Uh, yes, the Atlantic.com and their science archives. It was pointing out that the NASA house plant list that all of us has have, been, been misused. have been referencing in garden centers for, oh, 30 plus years now. Uh, is is misunderstood. It's not that mm-hmm. we're misusing it. It was testing plants for their ability to remove very specific things. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia, by the way, of all places, has a fantastic overview of it and it has the whole chart of all the plants that were originally tested and the ones that have been tested further for removing benzene and this and that from the air. Not their just general ability to make your air better, you know, better mm-hmm. and safer. 
in order to do that, in order to have plants act as air cleaners, which is essentially what a lot of people think they're doing. They go, oh, I need more oxygen in my room. I'm going to get, you know, house plants. One plant per 20 square feet. So a plant every four by five part of your room. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Depends um, on how big a plant you need. <laughs> I mean, I have a, a couple hundred yeah. little plants. This is where people are getting, folks. Uh, house plants have become a, a very, very popular trend with the, the post-millennials. So uh, that's a good rule of thumb. One plant per every 20 square feet. That's about what you need to buy, <laughs> says the retailer. So, so uh, <laughs> Interesting fact. Even though it says house plants aren't, aren't, aren't intended to clean your air. I got to tell you, it, house plants do a lot for a home. Yes. I mean, walk into a house that has no living things in it and just walk in the door at the end of the day and, and take a sniff and feel <laughs> what it feels like and then walk into my house. And boy, is it different. The, the smells aren't as mm, musty. The, the vibe is good. One interesting fact from one study was that a great deal of the air cleaning effect actually is from the soil they're growing in. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't believe that. Yeah. I don't, don't I, doubt don't, that at all. Yep. Okay. So if you want to know more about this, uh, Don has some, some links to it. But um, Just go to Atlantic Magazine. Just yeah. You'll find Whether it. or not they're cleaning your air, they they're good for air. you. They are cleaning your air, just not, just the, way, not, the, just way not the way you were thinking. thinking. Okay. All right. Um, now, how do I figure out how often to water a container plant? I right. answer, we answer this question <laughs> so awful often that um, we're narrowing it down and trying to come up with a simple formula. Because the reason this, this is a great tie-in with the number of houseplants that are selling. They're a huge trend right now, both succulents in particular, but also houseplants in general have so, come back in a big way. And the people who are buying them are great. We're having lots of fun talking to people between the ages of about 19 and 25 who are buying houseplants, the first living organism they've ever cared for. Okay, clearly. Other than the pet cat. Even that, that was mom's job. <laughs> and seriously, I'm talking to people who, when she asked me how to water, I thought she's saying how often or how, no, she meant, Literally, how do, how you, how do, do you, you water? And I said, yeah. okay, so you take a, I just, I just take a two cup measure and I put about two cups on. I make sure it goes through the pot. That some comes out in the saucer and the blank looks. Oh, that's right, the saucer is part of what you buy. <laughs> and so that they understand. You that need to ha- make a YouTube of when this you done. get home. That you'll be. That you, no, no, these kids don't use YouTube. Sure, <laughs> when they do. You, when you get no, 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 these are these are way past YouTube. When they get home, they they <laughs> uh, they will have some place to set it when they put the water in, so it doesn't run out onto the table. So literally, we're talking about how to water, and then the next. Next question is, how do you know the next time it needs water? And that's a surprisingly complicated question. I'm going to give a joking reply here. We just need no. to know. Okay, so Don has listed what we need to know about it. The location of the plant, the soil type, the current and projected ET rates. <laughs> what? Go on. <laughs> the landscape coefficient for the plant you're installing? What your water delivery system is? <laughs> And, and, and we'll be ready to give you the correct watering rice. Oh, so, and by the it? way, has it rained lately? What is it? Where is it? What kind of soil is it in? What's the current weather conditions? In other words, those are all the technical things we would supposedly need to know. But what they're really trying those to ask me... Those are mostly the outdoors. They're trying to really ask me is, is there some really simple way I can deal with this? And I said, all right, sure. I water my houseplants once a week. So do I. And I do it once a week based on the following premise, which is that as soon as I take it home, I transplant it into a bigger pot that's about two inches bigger in diameter. I do that and 
right it has away. the same soil in all of his pots. Right. All of them are in the same kind of potting soil, and they're in relatively similar light conditions in my house, moderate to bright light in most cases. And uh, that has been working very well once a week for all except the ferns, which clearly needed a little more often than that. But I think you could get by with most if you just did once a week thorough watering so you know it goes through the soil. Because one lady told me she was only putting a couple tablespoons of water on each time because she didn't know how much to put on. And that's a reasonable question, not knowing how much to put on. Mm -hmm. One to two cups is typically what it takes to get through the soil of a four, six, or eight-inch pot and show up in the saucer below. And I do that about once a week. If it's in a much bigger pot or it's a bigger, bigger, bigger plant or it's something that you know really doesn't need water very often, like a snake plant or an easy, easy plant, you can go two weeks. And that seems to be a formula that's working and understandable to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Once a week for most things, every two weeks for the things that are different in that regard. Kind of like when you learn French. First you learn how to conjugate a verb. Then you learn all the exceptions, right? All of you that took French, remember that? Okay, so you learn how to conjugate the verb once a week. <laughs> you learn how what the exceptions are. Oh, these plants only need it every couple of weeks, and you're fine. That'll cover most situations. And the plants that won't go for a week will die, and then you won't have to deal with them. <laughs> well, I prefer not to look at it that way, but well, hey. <laughs> you'll find that things so, you buy that you don't transplant that are in that really, really light, uh, mossy soil that a lot of the growers use will be more challenging to figure out. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the reasons I do strongly suggest we do it free of charge when people buy a plant. I say, it should probably be transplanted. Do you see a pot that you like? Oh, yes, I'd like We'll transplant it for you. We do it right there so they mm -hmm. walk home. They just buy the pot, the plant, and they right, do it. It's already been repotted because a lot mm -hmm. of these folks don't have any place to store soil. They don't know how to buy potting soil because they don't really know what all those differences are and all mm -hmm. the stuff they're being sold. And it just makes it easier. They take a plant that's ready to go for 9 to 18 months in the next pot that it's going to go into. Okay, so one of the things that I do, because I go away at times, and I have a friend who comes over to the house and waters the plants while I'm, while I'm gone. So what I do is I have a watering can. That's a, 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 a thing with a spout, okay? And as I pour water into a plant, I count one Two, three. So okay. We do the so, <laughs> so in my little tiny African violets, they're such small, small containers. A count of one. Well, that makes it, it runs out the bottom. You know, it's perfect. Well, that's it's very little. Well, in some other plants, it might be, it might be more, it might be bigger. So if you are trying to figure out how to do this, take your plant when you first get it, make sure that you've thoroughly soaked it the first time when you get it home. And then a week later, Take and water, count how much you're putting on. So it's a count of five. Stop. See if it, did it come out the bottom? Did it come? Oh, no, not come out the bottom. Put another one in. No. Okay. So I know that plant is going to take a count of six for every time that I water it. Okay. And that way, when I have a friend come to visit, I put little sticky notes on the plants. <laughs> Everything on this shelf is one, and this is a three, and that's an eight. And, um, and you know, it's... It, it, it sounds kind of silly, and it's, it takes a little effort the first time, but then you get to, to, to understand and to know, and when you're watering yourself, you know, oh, this one needs a little more, this one needs a little less, that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's fun to have plants. It, the simple thing to do is to test them with a moisture meter, right? Except that those are very complicated for people to figure out, and they don't last very long, as you have found yourself. Yes. Uh, what I find is simpler is to learn the weight of the pot when it's dry lift it up 
and the weight of the pot when it's watered, and that's a simple guide. Um, know that things will use more water even indoors when it's brighter because the days are longer and your house is warmer unless you're really unusual. Uh, so the, they'll be using more water in the summer. More frequent watering in the summer may mm-hmm. be necessary. But I'd be surprised if anything that isn't truly a fern type of thing needs to needs water more than once a week. Now, I just was having a conversation with a young man who is a very devoted houseplant buyer. I think he's got about 30 or 40 of them now, and he's only started on this a few months ago, uh, about whether it's beneficial to mist them. And I will mm. say that there's little point. If it makes you feel good to spray mist over your house plants, fine. But you think about what you're doing. You're trying to put water vapor around a plant in a room that is way bigger than the air volume that you're trying to bring up the humidity in. It, it simply just disperses. So it really mm-hmm. doesn't make any significant difference to the plant. The only purpose I can think of for, for using a mister on a plant is to get up close and rinse the leaves off if you have a plant that's prone to spider mites like croton or something like that. <laughs> Other than that, I just don't think that misting plants it makes much point. The only way you could get the humidity up be to bring in a humidifier and turn your room into a sauna. And I don't think that's going to be great no. for other things in the room. Most of the house plants that you buy nowadays, things in the philodendron family, things with, with thick, shiny, leathery leaves, do not need high humidity. Yeah. They come from places with high humidity, so that's why people maybe think they need it. But for the most part, they don't. And, and the only ones that I have that I'm finding I can't go for a week. And I and I thought I was going to solve the problem by putting them, I got them repotted into larger pots. It's my abutilon, and there are two of them that they wilt before the week is up. And so I'm just, my so what I'm going to do is I'm going to change my my calendar thing so it's every five days instead of every seven days, and I'll simply cut back the amount of water so that it's, I don't mean cut back, to, I mean it's an out- the other ones will adapt. My suggestion would be that abutilon is an outdoor plant. Yeah, so, well, I, I'm, <laughs> you're breaking the I'm rules gonna, right there. I'm not going to do that. So the other, the other reason I mentioned putting them all in the same kind of potting soil is, yes. an, is an issue in our industry and an issue with what we call potting soil. First of all, bottom line, there's no soil in potting soil. So they really shouldn't call it potting soil. Now, I said that, and someone online once said to me in a gentle correction, in the UK, the John Innes mixes, which are some of the original, very high-quality potting soils, contained soil. They used a type of soil that was screened to a certain size, and part of what you bought in a bag as potting soil was, in fact, soil. And that's pretty unusual because what we get as potting soil in this country is going to be a blend of peat moss, compost, and sand, usually, as the primary constituents, and then other things added to that. And there's a disturbing range of quality in potting mixes. I looked at one study, and this one actually, as I say, it disturbed me because of the range. When you take a, a certain volume of potting soil and pour water through it, a certain amount of water goes right through, and you can measure that. Fun experiment for kids. Do this at home. Same volume of soil, all put into something like a sieve. Uh, put something below them that can, collects the water and pour on a fixed amount of water onto the soil above and see how much goes through and drains out and, and accumulates in the, say, four-cup measuring cup that you put below it. The range is surprising. Some of them hold as little as 20 to 25% of the water you put in. The rest of it, 75 or 80%, flows right through and away. Okay? They don't hold. Wow. And that's washing all your minerals and Mm -hmm. nutrients away, too. Some of them held as much in this one test of 27 different potting soils. This was from Australia, so it doesn't, I don't have brands to put in front of you here, but some of them held as much as 80% 
So only twenty oh. percent of the water went through. It's so that's going to stay wet pretty really wet. Yeah. long. Uh, it could be okay, but you need to want, you'd probably want to know that. So let's say you have ten plants that you bought from different places, mm. and every grower uses a different soil mix, and you bring them home. This one never seems to dry out, or when it does, it's really hard to rehydrate it because that soil just shrinks away from the side of the pot. And the other one, no matter how much you pour in, it just runs right through. You're not going to be able to manage those the same. The average of moisture retention available water in these potting soils was about 45 to 55%. So about half of the water you put in drained right through. Okay, that's all right. You can live with that, but be aware of it, that uh, you're only putting on, you know, half as much water as you think you are. But that range is what I found disturbing. Now, this is the thing. There's no standards for Mm -hmm. this in our industry, and I don't think that there necessarily should be. You just want to look for a potting soil that is comfortable for your watering schedule. And uh, I would say this, you know, maybe this is my bias, but you really do get what you pay for. Because the wild card, if you will, in the recipe for potting soils, I mentioned they're usually peat moss or coir, which is cocoa fiber, but usually peat moss, sand, and compost. Well, what's the cheapest one of those three things? the compost and they found that sourced it locally somewhere wherever they're manufacturing it and it varies quite a bit even even brands that you'll see in in every everywhere across the nation like uh, miracle grow they aren't all manufactured in one place they've got a dozen or more manufacturing or, or bagging facilities around the country that source the compost portion locally the sand and the peat moss probably are you know are, are all pretty uniform uh, or the coir fiber if they're adding that because many places are but the compost is going to be something that's going to differ. I remember when a company came in that was selling compost, uh, selling potting soil where the compost was from grape pumice. This was a great idea. Napa Valley, excess grape, grape pumice. pumice, the stuff What's left left pumice? over after you make wine. And they have all this, this stuff that they wanted to get rid of. So they thought, oh, we'll blend it into potting soil. It was great, except that the water that ran through came out Red. Reddish. It stained things. So that one didn't work very well as a commercial product. It worked fine as a, as a potting soil or a planting soil, but it didn't work out so great from a retail standpoint. But that's just an example of trying to use something locally to save some money or maybe use something up, be ecological. And that varies quite a bit as to what they use. It can range from things that look like shavings to ground fine bark. That's a common one. Fine bark is fine. A little bit hydrophobic, but it works. Um, sometimes hydrophobic jargon term. Shreds, sheds water rather than absorbing it. Well, that's compensated by the peat moss that's in there. So it ends up just enhancing the drainage. Well, let's say they want to save a little money. Let's say you want to get a real bargain potting soil out there. Let's say you want to put something out in a, in a discount place and have them just pay a couple bucks a bag. Well, you're just going to bump that compost part up because that's the cheap is part of the mix. So now it's going to hold even less water. The water is just going to run through. Uh, So they frequently will add things to enhance the drainage like pumice or perlite for things like cactus or bonsai. They'll almost always add some kind of fertilizer nowadays. You usually have enough fertilizer in any potting soil to last for at least a season, sometimes more because they're using organic fertilizers that break down fairly slowly. And so that's all good, but you do get what you pay for. If it's really cheap, there's probably a reason. And you probably shouldn't use it as a potting soil. Or you should test it. Try pouring some water in and see what mm-hmm. happens. If the water just runs right through and you take that valuable ficus that you have and put it into that, you're going to have problems managing the watering in that. If, on the other end of the spectrum, you buy a really nice plant at the grocery store that's beautiful, whatever, and you take it home and it's really light, uh, the, the soil mix is really peaty, you know, feels like peat moss. Well, it probably is largely peat moss. 
and you'll have trouble managing that too because when it does go dry, it shrinks away from the side of the pot. We've all had the experience of pouring water onto a, something growing in essentially peat moss and watching it run down the side. And, and run not, out the bottom. And out the bottom and not soak in. So that mm-hmm. becomes difficult to manage. So you get a good quality potting soil that you like from whatever local vendor you like so that you'll be able to get it consistently and put all your plants pretty much into the same thing. So you'll be able to manage the watering if whatever is appropriate to your situation. It'll be a lot easier if you do that. Or when you buy your plant, bring it into a nursery, buy a buy a, a pot, pot, and ask them to replant it for you. Yep. So, okay. So I have two questions from what you just described. If you have a peat moss potting soil that has has come away from the side of the pot, so it's yep. running off, um, you can fix that. Yes. By before you get around to repotting the plant, which is the ideal thing, you can take that and you can soak it in a bucket. Yep. And I mean literally a bucket. And sometimes you actually have to put like a brick or something to hold, oh, it'll float to away. hold it because it, it'll float right out it'll of the pot. It'll soak up eventually. Yes. And, and leave it there for, oh, an hour or yeah. something so that that um, peat moss has has is forced to rehydrate. Once it's rehydrated, then you'll be able to water it again as long as you never, never, never let it dry out. And that makes it really tough. That's why you repot. There's been work on that. And in testing peat moss versus the coir fiber, which has become popular, that's a word a lot of people can't say easily. C-O-I-R. Coir. Coir. I've had two employees who literally couldn't say that word. Um, is coconut fiber, which is which has been shredded much like peat moss, and it's being used as a substitute for peat moss because it is sustainable. It's just a byproduct of the coconut industry as opposed to peat moss, which is mined up in the peat bogs of Canada. Uh, so they're not exactly identical, but they've done some tests on them to see how they function in terms of rehydration mm-hmm. when dehydrated. And it literally took 12 full waterings over a mix of fully dehydrated soil that had peat moss in it to rehydrate the peat moss. So that's what you're dealing with when it goes really dry, is it, it, has, it takes time for the moisture to penetrate the fibers and to be absorbed by them and for them to expand, and they do expand and fill the pot back out again. But it literally took 12 full waterings to do that. Obviously, that's not very practical. Mm-hmm. You could take it outside, and we do this all the time in the nursery business, just go with a hose, water, come back an hour later, water again, Water again, or water soak again, it in a bucket. or we have buckets around, and we yeah. do. We'll just set it in there and get it to rehydrate. Quar, which you're reading about and seeing on a lot of labels, and I'll talk more about quar in another show because I get a lot of questions about it. It's being used a lot for propagation for seeds, and it has some issues and disadvantages and drawbacks of quar. It also took a lot of hydrations to rehydrate. So yeah, they both have that issue. You don't want your, your mix to be too high in peat moss. You don't want it to be too high in compost. If it's too high in sand, it's really heavy. So you want this balance of those things, and you'll get a, a mix that you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Another thing is if you have a bag of soil that you've been keeping around for a while, and I do this all the time, you opened it, you used part of it, sort of closed it back up and left it outside. Well, right now, it's really wet. But normally, if you do that in the summer, it actually gets so dry that I suggest rehydrating it Mm -hmm. before you use it. And that's really simple. Just open it up, take a hose, put a gallon or two of water in there, let it rework its way through by capillary action to get all the parts of the soil mixed moist. Don't don't use it till the next day is the perfect thing. Yeah, or later the same. Yeah, give it a while to rehydrate. So your other... Okay, so the other question is... So here I am, I'm following Don's instructions, I've gotten this plant, it's happy, it's in a lovely pot, it's, it's hydrated, it's ready, and now I come to water it, I water it until I watch the water run out the bottom, 
mm-hmm. now, can I just stop at that point? Mm-hmm. That's or what do I, I do. Do I have to do something with the water that's run off the bottom? I just leave it. And I find in our climate... It evaporates. It evaporates or it soaks right back up into the soil and it isn't mm-hmm. a problem. Okay. Uh, I can think of some of you listening in places where that constant moisture down at the bottom would be problematic and could lead to root rot. Here, in most places, it really isn't. If you put in just enough that it shows up in the saucer and is down there and the pot's standing in a little bit of water, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's, if, if it's it takes more than a day for that water to be reabsorbed by the plant, then you've got a different problem. Could be. Uh, One other thing you'll notice is that when the water goes through your soil, it sometimes is not clear. It comes Mm -hmm. out the bottom, it's colorful. (laughs) It's usually brown or tan or orange, or in the case of the the wine pumice-based one, sort of a ruby red color. Um, That's okay. That's just the organic component releasing some of its lignans and tannins and organic compounds. And there's nothing harmful at all about that. It goes on for a surprisingly long time. One of the things about that organic part of the soil is it's holding nutrients for you and releasing them to the plant as the plant needs them. And some of it's being lost when that stuff goes down into the saucer. That's why you don't want to be watering constantly. You want something that holds moisture and holds nutrients, just like going all the way back to that planter boxes we talked about at the top of the show. Uh, it's the same issue, but on a smaller scale. So. Okay, the last question is, we talked about what to do, how to figure out how often to water a container plant or a house plant. But what about a plant outside? So the questions that he came up with are, what kind of plants are you watering? How well established are they? What is your soil like outside? What's the weather been like? Mm -hmm. What's the exposure? Is it mostly sun, mostly shade? Which direction, all that stuff. How are, what are you watering with? That is, what kind of device or system is applying the water? How much and how long have you been watering? Is there any moisture stored in the ground at this point or not? Um, And is there mulch on the soil? So with one minute left in the program. (laughs) We're going to delay that. We're going to table that motion. That gives you uh, the the overview of why (laughs) the person at the nursery starts saying things that either contradict what the other guy at the nursery said or seems like there's no simple answer. Yes, again, the once a week thing here in our silty loam, sandy loam and clay loam soils in Sacramento Valley for established plants are really good soaking once a week. Probably fine for quite a lot of things. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get more people to that than the frequent watering through the week. But it depends. If you're using a drip system that is calibrated to each day replace the previous day's water use, that's fine as long as it's calibrated properly. As we get into the warmer part of the season, we'll talk about that from two directions. One is watering your vegetable garden for the newly planted plants and then gradually as the season goes along. And then the second is watering your newly newly planted landscape and then how you change that watering as the season goes along and the plants are better established and as the years go along and the plants are better established. Mm -hmm. So if you have your own situation that you want us to address, wherever you're listening, Spain, Portugal, Mongolia, I know you folks are all over the world or here in California, uh, send us a note about your soil type, the kinds of plants you're trying to grow. We'll try to customize it to your situation because it is, after all, the Davis Garden Show is worldwide. It's davisgardenshow at gmail. Com. You've been listening to Don Shore and Lois Richter. Here in Davis, California. KDRTLP 95.7.